Okay, welcome back again to Unchanging Education. This is the Rife Primer Part 2. And there was only, uh, um, you know, I only really discussed Rife kind of indirectly in the first part. Um, I had a lot of sort of topical uh, commentary that I wanted to make. But one thing that I, I hope was clear is that um, Rife certainly has an interest in activism or inactivism and what he calls cultural decline and that it really um, that it also it seems to have a lot to do with education too but what happens to the individual or we might say the student um, you know the the person who is kind of ultimately um, becomes a victim of this and what does that look like? How is that described? Um, so what what happens to the individual? What is his fate, so to speak? So Rife is dense, and so um, the, the Rife quotes are difficult, and, and reading him is difficult. Um, so there's a that's how I want to start, with a quote here from Philip Rife, from fellow teachers. Quote, no character becomes authoritative in him. Only cultureless societies can exist without presiding presences. No presence can preside when all are subject to abandonments quick as their adoptions. Our passionate truths are so provisional. They move so quickly with the electrified times, that none can prepare us to receive them deeply into ourselves as character. They do not become compelling in their interdicts. Interdicts is something that is forbidden, but endlessly attractive in their remissions. Something that, that would, would mean forgive. Okay, so there's this this uh, dichotomy being set up here between character and no character. Or, um, you know, something that is characterful or characterless, I suppose. So what we get is that there's no compelling forbiddenness. And here we're thinking that, well, all is permitted, and also we should be thinking of do what thou wilt. Just endlessly attractive forgiveness. Anyway, again, I'm not in a war zone here. As soon as I start recording uh, Murphy's Law, uh, fireworks start start popping up on the other side of my window here. Anyway, um, so this whole point about interdicts and remissions, this is you know going to be it's it's new and unfamiliar vocabulary. At least it was for me. Um, again, interdicts in terms of what we forbid, and remissions in terms of what we forgive in terms of a culture in terms of a healthy culture that is not in decline or decay. But the point here is that the only taboo is taboo itself. I think that's what Rife is indicating. Um, we might be familiar with this same phenomenon, but by another word, destigmatization. So where he talks about that our passionate truths are so provisional, I, I actually think that this is maybe sarcastic. Um, or it could also be meant in the sense of like 
passion in the bad sense, passion in, as akin to something like hedonism. So with a lack of character and with nothing nothing being forbidden and with everything being forgiven, basically, sure, I mean, anybody can do anything they want kind of thing. Um, so again, I mean, we have to remember that there's, um, that there is a correlation between, you know, this problem in education and, you know, leftism and, and 60s radicalism and uh, the long march through the institutions is all connected here. And rightfully, I think, is clearly against it. And again, this speaks to this this unchanging idea. And again, I'm sure I've talked about this, but I mean, the reason that I'm talking about unchanging education, I'm using that as my, at least my working title, is that um, it refers both to this idea that, you know, education, the last thing education needs is any more change. Change is what's absolutely gutted education. And uh, this changing changing it into activism um, is what is, in a sense, speeding up this process of cultural decline, as Rife might say. What we really need to do is unchange. Um, we need to kind of remove these things. And um, what do we do and what do we go back to? Do we have to completely reinvent education itself? Well, no, all we have to do is go back. We have to revert. Um, again, you could say that in a technical sense... This is a regressive vision of education um, because it's a sense that, yes, we want to go back to the way it was before it was corrupted, perverted, distorted. So we want to go back to these, well, what are the permanent, the perennial, or the essentialist, these earlier forms of teacher-centeredness? The idea that the mission of education and in many ways, education itself is an unchanging thing. That we have these permanent questions, um, you know, that, that we continue to ask that are, you know, that, that we cannot solve. I mean, you know, how to live a good life and how to order society and these kinds of things. Um, and all we can do is continue to try to answer these questions. And so um, we don't really need education to change all that much. Um, we had said, we kind of we're still dealing with so many of the same questions and same problems. Of course, it doesn't mean that nothing should ever change. I mean, we're you know we're not committed to some idea that we should you know still be learning typing or, or something like that. These some things do um, you know necessarily change as a result of of a changing culture, um, but not that education through activism should itself deliberately be changing culture that I suppose education should be more uh, should be more downstream rather than again trying to mold culture itself or you know really more apropos is that we don't want to allow for our educational system to be hijacked by some kind of uh, radical politics and towards some kind of revolution Okay, so continuing here with Rife. And again, trying to really, you know, zero in on what he's talking about here. What we have in this, again, with no presiding presence, no authoritative character, right? No real commitment. Just abandoning things and adopting other things. 
this kind of this this wishy-washy and this impressionable individual um, who doesn't feel that they're forbidden from doing anything and feels that they can be forgiven for anything. And like I said, the only taboo is taboo itself. What we have is an endless barrage of originalities, such youthfulness and originality, trendiness, some call it, are fatal to the life of the mind. And this is how we should be thinking of education. Um, we're talking about this, you know, this relationship between, you know, academics versus activism. Forget about academics. You know, we have we need to have this kind of broader vision of you know the life of the mind. Which we can say begins in, in academics, and it begins in, you know, reading, etc. To leave the great past unremembered is to be lost in the howling present. Then, the best an intellectual can do is to shoot off at the mouth. So from Merriam-Webster, to shoot off at the mouth is to talk foolishly, carelessly, or too much about something. Saying in this state of cultural decay, um, that we have this again these these you know quote unquote passionate truths that just seem to come and go. Uh, every day there's a new cause, um, you know, a, a new thing to be outraged about and to militate against. This uh, you know some would just call it kind of trashy, but this these youthful, original, trendy kinds of things. That this, without a presiding presence, without authoritative character in you, you actually cannot experience, you can't step into the life of the mind. And because also attendant to this life of the mind is remembering the great past, to kind of be a, an apprentice to human history itself and, and to the great, to be introduced to the great conversation, as, as it might be called. And it takes a, a kind of a, a long, um, like long focused attention. But if you if you don't have that, I mean, then um, you can't really have real intellectualism. Without a life of the mind, um, when all you have are all these, you know, passionate truths and all this kind of, kind of trendiness and etc. Then the only thing that, you know, so-called intellectuals can do is just, basically what he's saying here is just to kind of mouth off, right? And I wonder if he's thinking of, you know, just critiquing and criticizing everything, right? Just the this, this whole cleverness negation game that, you know, that, uh, you know, some graduates become very good at playing. Um, which is basically something like everything you think is bad is actually good, and everything you think is good is actually bad. And uh, I've got this um, this highly tuned cleverness thing that I've acquired through university. Uh, but anyway, he's just again. I, I mean, I'm, I'm partly relying. I don't know exactly what he means. I mean, the actual quote is "shoot off" uh, to shoot off at the mouth. Anyway. So, and I'm using a kind of an idiom definition um, about being, you know, foolish, careless, or too much. But I think it works well. 
Um, because the opposite to this, I mean, someone with an authoritative character or presiding presence, um, you know, someone with you know, the life of the mind, remembering the great past, that this kind of intellectual can be serious and careful, but also sparse, rather than talking too much. There's a, a kind of a joke that's a, a affiliated with Philip Reif that um, instead of, you know, the, the university culture of publisher parish, where you need so many publications in order to get tenure, he said that we should give everyone tenure when they're hired, um, and then every publication should lead, lead them closer to losing it. Just because there's just too much being published all the time, and it, it doesn't it doesn't contribute to knowledge in any sense. Okay. So um, there's also something interesting about student-centeredness and kind of a high-tech culture too. Um, and educational professionals are so eager to embrace technology need only to do the complete opposite of or to preserve the life of the mind for a generation, to keep faith with the presiding presences of the great and sacred past. So what we end up with is that there's no presence, albeit only the presence of an absent presence. What is this absent presence? Um, again, with, with no authoritative character, no presiding presence, and all these passionate, you know, adopting things and abandoning them, then adopting something else, passionately. We have our, these, we have novelty and identity, or we might just combine them and say the, all of these novel identities that are emerging. And that everyone is, you know, desperate seemingly to, to change into something else. We get the sense that, again, there's not something really, again, moving quickly with the electrified times that we don't receive real truths deeply into ourselves as character. Now, it doesn't mean that, you know, again, not that no one should ever change or that education should never change, but some kind of, there's an idea of character here as like a, a deep core, um, as something that's foundational or essential somehow, right? Um, that is distinct from the current moment, which seems much more, again, invested in something like novel identities. And that is kind of the absent presence of character versus the life of the mind with its deeply compelling character. A kind of a character that, again, opposite of cultural decline, where this kind of a healthy cultural character is presiding and compelling and present and slow, right? In the way that it compels you through character versus this passionate, attractive, quick, comes and goes, trendy and original. And in the end, you're not left with character, but you're left with this, what I call identities, that there's a, you know, this postmodern plural this plurality or multiplicity. And that, you know, I think that Rife would associate that with, with education and also with cultural decline as it pertains to character. Okay. So, of course, people need ontological security, a deeply rooted and established origin, a wellspring of security, 
that must be achieved in childhood, it seems. But before leaving the parental world of the child to enter into, let's say, for example, the university world of the professor, no longer a child, as an adult, the child may incorrectly identify the intellectual as the emotional, namely in experiencing argumentation as a personal attack as opposed to an intellectual process. So this idea is that, you know, what I'm talking about here is that, you know, a child needs to be, uh, needs to achieve a certain level of security. Um, there's a kind of a, the deep ontological security of kind of, you know, this baseline that you get from your parents and knowing that you're loved and cared for and that your basic needs are being met um, as a template for trust. And then there's this way in which univer- uh, that the K-12 basically uh, transitions you out of this kind of like warm, safe family environment into and pre- preparing you for the adult world and for university. Um, and that K-12 has to be this kind of a, a transition from being the child in the home to being an adult in the world, um, which really should begin at university, um, which should not just be an extension of K-12 itself. Um, and so I'm going to talk about a, a balance here um, that uh, about, you know, talk about therapy or therapeutic education um, and uh, maybe that if education becomes too therapeutic, it can contribute to this imbalance um, and, and student-centeredness as, as Im- Im- implicit in this. Um, but let me just uh, include this, this fabulous quote about, um, as it pertains, I think, to therapeutic education. Um, the problem isn't that Johnny can't read. The problem isn't even that Johnny can't think. The problem is that Johnny doesn't know what thinking is. He confuses it with feeling. The Thomas Sowell quote. So, I mean, certainly some educators out there will be saying, well, no, reading really is the problem. But again, um, is it that, you know, we're failing to emphasize reading enough probably, but that's as a consequence of emphasizing too many other things. And this, the, the therapeutic um, influence in education um, and, and even the, the fear that becomes instilled in, in, in the adults with the, the members of the mature generation, um, that in some ways we kind of become, um, you know, afraid that experiences can be, can be traumatic, etc. That there's a, a kind of a, a loss of a confidence that occurs. And so how do we, in a sense, that this, this idea of security and that this kind of, you know, that, that the child is certainly much more, you know, at home in this world of feeling rather than thinking. And again, if we think of the child in the home as a, as a feeling entity and that we want to usher them through education out of this primary or primarily feeling modality into more of a thinking modality or into reason uh, and ushering them through, you know, reaching the age of reason themselves. Um, again, before, before we, you know, before they matriculate, before they enter, you know, the world. 
And the idea is that we're failing to do that, that we're not introducing them into culture, that we're not tempering feeling and, and making and emphasizing reason and thinking. And that this may be, you know, be placed at the foot of a therapeutic culture. That in the end, we've got all these adults who are still primarily in this feeling modality. Um, that they're not thinkers. Again, that the best that these intellectuals can do is shoot off at the mouth. Right? That there's something, you know, foolish and careless about the way that these adults are thinking. Adult thinking is not supposed to be foolish and careless. Adult thinking is supposed to be serious and careful. And this might be, you know, this is probably the kind of thing that, you know, postmodern, post-structuralist theorists would say, you know, indicates some sort of, I don't know, white European colonial, uh, patriarchal, you know, et cetera, et cetera, mindset. So, of course, there is like, you know, there's an important conversation here about thinking and feeling, and we don't want a completely unfeeling, you know, kind of cold, you know, rational, excessively rational. I mean, that that's some, um, that we want, you know, we still want creativity, and, and there's probably some, some unstructured, some chaos is a part of that, that that's good to a point for creativity. And indeed, I mean, I even want to say, as someone who's studied uh, the Frankfurt School, that even an idea like surplus repression can still be uh, a useful and effective idea. That it can go too far. There can be an excess of too much thinking and not enough feeling. But certainly that is not the problem that we today have. But we can imagine an alternate, like an, an opposite uh, a kind of a counterfactual of, of a culture that could be in a cultural decline based on um, having too much thinking and not enough feeling. But that's just not the, not the problem that we have. Okay. So I want to read uh, th three paragraphs, I think, um, from John S. Rice. And this is all about therapeutization, the therapeutization of, of culture and education. Um, a key issue related to interdex versus remissions or norms and sanctions. It has become fashionable over the last 30 years to be critical of sanctions, things that you can't do, um, and for that matter, norms altogether, as simply attempts to control behavior. The logic, such as it is, of this critical stance is that societal control of the individual is unnecessary and damaging. Unnecessary because, according to the critics of social control, people are by nature cooperative, constructive, positive creatures, and, as such, do not need to learn collective standards for morally acceptable behavior. We should be thinking of Rousseau here. Damaging because... Again, according to those who espouse these views, collective control over the individual prevents the self from developing naturally. Again, rules or interdicts um, or any, any sort of, you know, shalt not. Continuing with Rice. These views are widespread in contemporary American life. 
and are part of what has been called the therapeutization of American culture. They also play a large role in a variety of, ins of social institutions, including education. Although widespread, there are good reasons to be cautious about simply taking these ideas at face value. First of all, it is certainly the case that we humans have the capacity to be very positive and constructive creatures. But, as the entirety of the historical record shows us quite clearly, we also and simultaneously have the capacity for unspeakable evil. The story of our species as a whole, that is not just one civilization but pretty much all of them, is burdened with innumerable instances of human sacrifice, torture, slavery, genocide, and general inhumanity towards one's fellow humans. Those who assert that humans are only and or always good tend to either be ignorant of history or to simply ignore it altogether. Moreover, they also reveal fundamental misunderstandings about culture, Although they are multifaceted entities, cultures are humanity's ongoing attempt to control our destructive, aggressive, selfish, and self-serving tendencies and to encourage the development and cultivation of, to paraphrase Abraham Lincoln, those better angels of our nature. Quote, as to the notion that the imposition of collective expectations on the individual is damaging, again, there is a grain of truth here. Certainly an excess of constraint can negatively affect, and at the extremes perhaps even destroy, the individual's spirit or character. But the operative word here is excess. Every civilization, society, culture, in the history of the species, has exercised control over the individual. This is one of the principal mechanisms by which any civilization comes into existence and survives across time. Without shaping individuals into a collection of like-minded souls, civilizations, societies, would not be possible. Equally important, however, is that without societies, Individual identity as a coherent, stable, and enduring sense of oneself also cannot survive. End quote. So we note here that culture controls and thus also kills the self. So let's kill it first. But this, uh, this tendency, this kills the self too, actually, in addition to culture. And this is why it is wholly destructive, and why also control is to be preferred. Right? This kind of radical anti-control, well, society controls us, doesn't let us be free individuals, so let's just kill society first, before it can kill us, and we can be free individuals. But then, the problem, obviously, is that without a society, there's still no such thing as a free individual. That, that such a thing only exists within society which is kind of a delicate balance of a lot of things. It can't, a free individual can't exist outside of society because out of, outside of society, you're just in the state of nature. You're, 
it may seem like you can be a free individual just in nature, like as a as predator or prey. Um, but it's not the same thing. So control, we have to admit, it does imply these kinds of micro-destructions, right? These rules, these uh, prohibitions, inhibitions, these um, interdicts, right? Thou shalt, or plural, thou shalts. Um, it is a high cost, but it's worth paying. That I mean, that is the truth. That is the reality. I mean, and, and we need to maintain that. If we, as teachers and educators, if we are going to ultimately exist in a pro-society, pro-civilization way, that we are um, defending and upholding something that we inherited. So control is actually preferable to revolution, right? Completely unrestrained and uncontrolled. So control includes these, yeah, it has these, these micro-destructions in a plural sense, and it's a high cost worth paying, versus revolution, which is macro-destruction, capital D, singular, rather than these plural micro-destructions. It's macro-destruction, capital D, singular, as I said. And this is an all-too-high cost, and it is not worth paying. Now, anyway, thinking about in this example about Johnny and this kind of feeling thinking. Such a person might not be ready to exit the family world, to enter university, or any other form of intellectual life of the mind. So K-12 education fails to provide this transition, or even more problematic, sufficient security is not achieved from parents, and then from, from this security and this feeling modality um, into a kind of intellectual security in a thinking modality or mentality. Uh, again, K-12 has to serve that transition and it performs a vital social function that way. Having too many, you know, insecure feeling people uh, that, again, are... Um, as Thomas Sowell says, that they they don't know the difference between thinking and feeling. But insofar as university has, insofar as university is a right, excuse me, there's no way to preserve it as an intellectual and also as a creative force in culture, in the service of civilization, even higher culture that consists in higher order pleasures. So let me reiterate. We move from the we move the, the child and the family and feeling into you know being a part of you know adult society through K to twelve. K to twelve is this kind of a transition. Um, so you know reading and thinking and not being confused and being clear, clear minded. Right. That's that's what K to twelve is supposed to do for Johnny. We can't stop the unready. And so we commit the absurdity of assuring children be university educated. Right? Again, this um, this family home in K-12, um, this, that whole relationship, it, it, it doesn't do its job. 
and part of that can be placed at the feet of, of activism, which is why, for example, Ref would be in favor of inactivism, um, that it's just sort of getting in the way, that it's just doing more harm than good. But we don't see the establishment of ontological security as a rite of passage, as prerequisite to the so-called human right of higher education. Now, since university education is a human right, even you know immature individuals who haven't received or inherited culture, um, again, who confuse thinking with feeling, if university is a human right, we cannot deny... Um, you know, for all intents and purposes, we can't deny a child a place in a university. And thus, you know, universities filled with children can't be universities at all themselves. Okay. But without that piece, there can be nothing higher about that education. And so, you know, contradiction or oxymoron prevails. So what we have is the lowering of higher education which also is the lowering of everything. Since we cannot deny admission to the adult world of, of people of a certain age with a high school or university diploma because you know it's seen in, in bad taste, and corporatized universities, quad-degree vendors, want more customers, we must make the university a safe place, a place that is safe for a child mind. Right, a, a, a confused thinking feeler. Again, a safe space. We increasingly accommodate and thus dilute the university for the ontologically insecure and emotionalize it. Again, this, this all refers to therapeutization, overemphasizing feelings that are, of course, important, but their importance primarily belongs to the personal uh, instead of the rational public intellectual world. So again, it it, it, this is the university risking its own degradation. A counter-argument to consider is that this security must now be gained later on in life, not merely compensated for. And so the nurturance of childhood for security is delayed, and thus we must accept universities adopting this role, and take with a grain of salt the inundations of higher education as increasingly coddling and of the nanification uh, of a kind of an over-emotional system, obsessed with the emotional to an extent that education is undermined. Um, so it's not just this notion of uh, the, the child student who's you know safe and secure. Um, I mean, certainly that, it must seem like a very reasonable thing for education to become so therapeutic. Um, and uh, you know this emphasis on on the child's safety and security, etc. But I think that Rife would say, uh, well, we also need society to be safe from them, right? If we do not operate on a Rousseauian uh, assumption about human nature, if instead we say every child is a born criminal. Right, every every baby that is born is a primate who has to become socialized. That we need to, like society has a right to protect itself from you know criminals, 
And again, this idea, again, it's, uh, it's kind of, may, may seem pessimistic, but it's the idea that every child is a born criminal. And so um, we do need them like the, the, to, to, to learn how to act in certain ways, ultimately, for example, to be law-abiding. But there's so much more to education than, you know, following laws and rules, which again, the, um, the teacher-centered hollow man might not uh, permit you to, to, to see it in this way. So we have a lowering of education and a heightening of emotion. Again, we don't have a life of the mind, and we don't have this kind of deeply compelling character. But again, we have this 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 noted obvious absence, but this thing that should be there, that should be present, this absent presence of a life of the mind and a deeply compelling character. Um, and we have these novel identities. Foolish, careless, talking too much about something and shooting off of the mouth. This kind of strange phrase. Creatures of cultureless society. That's what Rife is talking about, okay? In terms of that the no character becomes authoritative. Why should the collapse of parenting cause the collapse of education? by way of compensation. Again, there's this... By the time the child reaches adulthood, there are certain things that a society is, is supposed to be able to achieve or to do. And there's a sense that this entire uh, process is a sense being delayed. And uh, it, it could be it has something to do with coddling. Um, I think maybe not exactly in the same sense that Haydn Lukianoff used the term coddling. Um, but there is a sense that education is failing to do its job of, um, of taking the child, um, you know, who, again, I mean, parenting and child rearing is, is you know, a whole, probably a whole different, opens up a whole different topic of conversation that I'm not really, you know, prepared to discuss that the parents do their job of parenting and that you, you, we get um, a, basically a, a socialized, parented child uh, arriving at school ready to learn. And then teachers do their job from there. And, you know, by the time the child arrives at university, they are an adult, right? A first-year university student is an adult. And, you know, using this example, just because the, you know, Johnny, who knows the difference between thinking and feeling... Um, or as Rife says, with you know an authoritative presiding presence um, that is deep as character and compelling in its interdicts. So uh, again, it's probably smart to think back to this whole. Again, I'm using my own kind of complicated language about TVSC and teacher versus student centeredness and uh, to delineate this terminologically. And there's a kind of an argument here that, okay, well, teacher-centeredness is, in a sense, preferable to student-centeredness, or to problematize student-centeredness. And it's a critique of student-centered, which is not the answer, right? There's a kind of a cult, cultish, um, you know, fervor for student-centeredness as the answer to the problems of education. But also that what we need is an equilibrium of the two um, as, a, as kind of a hypothesis 
of, you know, teacher versus student centered, that we need this contest in the marketplace of ideas in education at the level of theory, of pedagogy. Uh, a blended, balanced, uh, for example, with order and chaos. Progressive and conservative. Uh, otherwise, we get this unchecked slingshot, this kind of Chernobyl effect, that you remove too many of something that is maintaining um, you know, the way it is, um, and it can be disastrous. So uh, I, in terms of the early stages of this process, I intuited that teachers ought not to talk like therapists uh, due to a substantial interest that I had in, in mental ill health. That I've already talked a lot about that state activism can't exist, but there's an idea here that state activism, in a sense, becomes a kind of an ideology uh, a manipulation and indoctrination and that teachers can't be activists if they're obedient civil servants just doing what education wants or tells them to do. So if we assume that Rife is right and that we remove too many of the safeguards of what maintains a, a culture um, you know, because we think that control is bad um, we could say that this both is caused by this therapeutization um, and ostensibly necessitates even more of it. That we remove this, this kind of safeguards of a, let's say, of a kind of a traditional culture um, because control is bad um, and, and because our culture becomes more therapeutic. And uh, there's this sense, this kind of hangover from Freud that saying no or denying anyone anything creates a kind of a complex. But this creates a bigger problem, a kind of a, a negative feedback loop or a vicious circle, a vicious cycle, that we've removed these safeguards and we've, we've removed controls because we think that they're bad because we want to be more therapeutic. But removing the safeguards removes a sense of, like a real, a deeper sense of uh, security that manifests, as Rife would say, as culture, as a, uh, sorry, as character. And so these... You know, these these you know creatures of a characterless society, um, the creatures of a cultureless society, actually come to need more therapy just to be able to cope with their reality, uh, because they haven't inherited a a kind of a, a stable place in a stable culture. That we decide, well, that stability, it's 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 just too controlling. We need to get rid of it. Um, we need to be more therapeutic, and that this so destabilizes things that it almost it just creates more and more of a need for more and more of a, a therapeutic approach. Okay, so telling young people who by definition have a limited understanding that it's a bad world and their passion unchecked, right? See also that bad passion passion can be good or bad, and bad passion we could say is hedonism. Do what thou wilt. Do what feels good. It feels good to rebel, to reject established authority and the status quo. That's what any, you know, born criminal or, you know, as yet unsocialized primate um, <laughs> is a default position. And so we tell them that they do not need to inherit culture, that they need to change it. And that we become guilty in this therapeutic modality of worshipping children's passion 
and rooting or embedding a hope to change society within it. And it's altogether destructive. And I think this is kind of what Rife is talking about with this notion of, you know, cultural decline. It's when a culture loses confidence in itself to that it knows what to tell and what to teach young people. It just kind of says, well, you know, you you figure out you make up you figure out the world yourself, you know, good luck, buddy. The lack of a crisis of confidence um, that infects uh, child rearing and education, and they would just say, "Well, kids should teach themselves," and like, the, you know, the whole world is bad, and that kids know how to fix it with their passion. And, you know, you, you do it, you figure it out. But of course, we know kids, not adults, with passion and not reason, must change the world, not apprentice it, not appreciate it. But we need passionate kids, not rational adults. That that is the solution in this Rousseauian utopian mind virus. And we end up with really absurd changes to education. And predictable but unpredicted problems. Turmoil, dissent, destruction. And what does student-centeredness tell us? Quote, it is all about the learner, and that student voice and choice is necessary for student agency. If the teacher is the one who provides the choices in the curriculum, then the teacher is still directing the learning. Student choice means students choose how they learn something and possibly what they learn. This is from 10 Steps to Encourage Student Voice and Choice. And of course, it's rethinking, reimagining education. In education, student voice refers to the values, opinions, beliefs, perspectives, and cultural backgrounds of individual students and groups of students in a school, and to instructional approaches and techniques that are based on student choices, interests, passions, and ambitions. Let the students lead, guide, and direct themselves. Implicit premise, because we have no idea what to do or what to tell them. We have no faith and no confidence in ourselves that we know what they need to learn. So we don't know what to teach them. So just we're just going to let them figure it out for themselves. And hope that they don't destroy civilization. So anyway, why would we commit to this idea? Um, that, that this is a good idea. Why follow Rousseau so faithfully? without knowing the particulars, right? That we indulge rather than instruct, and that we gratify rather than risk displeasing students. Well, because they're the center. We have to reject this kind of thinking and this, this rethinking and this reimagining. We have to think of Again, limits, limitations, controls, boundaries, rules, norms, etc. as good things. Um, not as something that's unnecessary, as in Rousseau, or again, in this misinterpretation of Freud that, um, that denying things, you know, is going to create some sort of deep-seated psychological dysfunction, which I don't think Freud actually thought. 
again, uh, the, the 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 adult class, the uh, you know the mature generation, we have to regain our own confidence um, that we have a culture that is worthy of sustaining, maintaining, preserving, um, and that we can't just resign ourselves to saying, well, you know. Well, if the culture is in decline, then, well, maybe it's not a good culture and it should decline anyway. The prominence of that idea is unspeakably dangerous. So another uh, short text, uh, Student Voice Definition, the Glossary of Education Reform. The new culture of early student activism in K-12 is cashing in on activist chic cachet. Say and who distort marks. Say of the world. We hitherto have not changed the world enough. The point is not to understand it. So anyway, this is kind of a confusing point, but marks uh, that change extends out from understanding. When Marx said, you know, the philosophers have hitherto only, you know, interpreted the world, the point is to change it. But the idea here is that change extends out from understanding, right? Uh, not that, well, let's just skip over all the understanding and trying to interpret things and cut right to the fun, juicy part where we just get to change things, where we get to make our mark upon reality. Uh, that this is not, that this is all, this isn't even, I think, what Marx would have wanted. Um, <laughs> that might sound strange. Um, but I think that there is still, um, you know, there is still a seriousness in Marx in terms of an understanding of the world and, and diagnosing problems. Um, now, now there's also certainly a, a confidence in knowing the solution. Um, but still, I think that there, there's a problem here that the kind of a, of a neo-Marxist who, bastardizes these two steps of understanding and interpreting the world and then changing it. Um, that just skipping the first step and going straight to the second one. Anyhow, back to education. That Our focus is not on understanding phenomena, but making the understanding itself the phenomena. This kind of perverse pedagogical navel-gazing. Learners focus on their own learning and learn about it and that they understand their own understanding and all this metacognitive, reflective, uh, this whole emphasis in student-centeredness. And of course, there's, this is, this is psych, this, uh, there's a psychologization that is, of course, a part of therapeutization, focusing on the subject and the ego. It's very Deweyan. Right, it's experiential and it's inquiry. It's not directing what and how they learn. Their point is not to understand versus to be understood. That is explicitly decivilizing, or again, it's a kind of a cultural decline. Um, that everyone just only wanting to be understood, that there's something dysfunctional about that. We need people who are willing to and want to understand.
Again, this is another way to think about TVSC. In teacher-centeredness, there's an emphasis that the student exists um, as someone who needs to understand. But in a, in a therapeutic student-centered mode, we want to understand the student. The student should be the one that's understood, that we are doing the understanding of them, rather than they are trying to understand us to ensure that some sort of content or knowledge is understood. Again, it's completely psychological and therapeutic in that sense. Treating the, calling the student or the pupil, I think we should probably provide this term of pupil. Um, just even changing this language from student into child or individual, uh, we might as well call them the adolescent, right? Treating them as someone who is in therapy, that is in the therapeutic situation. What we should really want is these students to understand and to understand in a cool and dispassionate way that sure we can still have inquiry but in a scientific or in an objective form rather than this desperate you know sense this need to be understood and that the way that this is that there's a heatedness and a passion in this inquiry as a kind of neologism inquiry as a misnomer um, and something that is just subjective rather than objective, right? Subjective and relativistic rather than objective and universal. So inactivism and explicit regressivism, better to state it than be accused of it. That sure, if you want to call this regressive, teacher-centeredness in that sense, that we need to go back to the way things were before we changed them and made them worse, then fine. Okay, so we've got this theoretical impulse that I'm pushing forward towards a more of a hybridized teacher, student-centered uh, scaffold architecture. Student-centeredness relieves a teacher-centered over-commitment or over-reliance. Um, but it should not be, it shouldn't exist on its own. That even in some ways the good things, um, some of the good reforms or good progressive ideas, they still need, they still depend and rely upon teacher-centeredness. Um, and that's basically kept secret in practice, that we still have so many great teachers doing such great work, but they're doing it in a sense by being secretly or kind of by being low-key teacher-centered. And that there's this big public show, especially at the level of theory and pedagogy, and the way we talk about ideas is completely student-centered. You know, all the great teachers doing great teaching really keep them at arm's length. I think that that is a snapshot of education that I really want to, to try to showcase that great teaching practice exists in spite of student-centeredness by, again, by, by minimizing it, by distancing one's real teaching practice on the ground from it. And you see this in the way that a lot of kind of facilitators, when they're talking or explaining things, they do it apologetically. You know, like, I'm sorry I'm talking so much. I'm talking so long. I've been talking for 10 minutes. Um, because, again, it, it has to be this... It's a dirty little secret that all the good teachers are teacher-centered because it conflicts with the theory. Because just that sole student-centeredness. Student-centered is always the answer to everything. 
that's writ large in theory. And so you can't really talk openly about the fact that, um, yeah, that, that good teaching, that real instruction or direct instruction, um, explaining things carefully. Okay. It's teacher-centered. Great teachers are teacher-centered in practice. But the problem increasingly is that new teachers only know about student-centeredness in theory. So either they pick up teacher-centeredness from real practitioners, from competent teachers, um, or they, again, they probably just become these these more kind of like these radical activistic kind of types, right? It's kind of a coin flip based on the kind of a, the kind of school a new teacher would land in. So ideally we want to correct both imbalances or excesses. The extant theory practice gap that student-centeredness is not greater than teacher-centeredness. Practitioners diverge from theorists in actual real fact, right? So the idea, again, is that student-centeredness is dominant at the level of the way we think and talk, at the level of theory and pedagogy, but not really at the level of real teaching practice. Again, because the teachers who survive and don't just burn out, uh, they have to become largely teacher-centered, the as yet extant now introduced theoretical blind spot that again, SC is not greater than TC, that theory needs to be led by practice, right? Pulling in the opposite direction. So interestingly, teacher-centeredness is the true activism um, because it's ignoring theory. And then a synthesis to deliver this gap explicit into theory, to migrate it from practice into theory. And instead of inculcating new SC teachers, theory imposed upon practice, we need to seek a more balanced or blended homeostasis. Each TC and SC eliminate, they can kind of check or balance each other's excess. And that's the aim, to bring this oppositional adversarial intellectual process back to check and balance SC's theoretical level supremacy. Basically, teacher-centeredness is good because all the good teachers are doing it, but no one's talking about it because of a kind of a repressive culture of silence in pedagogy, in educational theory. And uh, again, making it more of a, a contest of ideas or populating a marketplace of ideas. You know, that is um, heterodox you know, or heterogeneous. So with TVSC, we could use the term uh, bicentric for my sort of thesis here. Uh, bicentric of having two centers of origin, having or involving two centers. Okay. Um, so again, still thinking about this idea of uh, control. Um, you know, thinking of, for example, someone like Foucault, uh, who get, comes up a lot. Um, discipline is not just. Well, discipline, we need to think in terms of, sure, we can think of like excessive or surplus control. Um, but let's just think of the word discipline itself first, that we can think of discipline as a, a university discipline or a major, but also as self-control. 
And the great quote that I, I am indeed a king, for I know how to rule myself. Right, that, so that's discipline as self-control, but also we have, you know, the formal academic disciplines, let's say. But there's a sense that first you have to narrow yourself before you broaden too much. Right, that you have to focus on just one thing in order to kind of get good at it. And that it requires, you know, discipline and sacrifice that go together. In kind of hard grinding work to realize potential en route to a different kind of freedom right that freedom is the telos freedom is the end point that we're trying to get to and really what in order to get to freedom we need to delay gratification in order to increase net freedom later on and the problem is that when we don't delay gratification um, in the name of freedom, in a way that's mistaken, misled, misguided, kids, well, we want to maximize their freedom and their passion. Um, what you're going to end up with is, you know, hedonism and narcissism and actually less freedom, right? Less freedom now that we need, you know, again, rules and boundaries and all these kinds of things. And for somebody like discipline to be emphasized in education, even to an extent, punishment. However uncomfortable people might be with that idea, um, it is part of ensuring like a, a deeper freedom for the rest of one's life. All right, so TVSC. Student-centeredness sees teacher-centered discipline or punishment as an obstacle to freedom, right? That it's anti-freedom and that we want freedom. We want no controls. We want to remove all these controls. But TC needs to be able to make this case that, no, I mean, that discipline or even punishment, that this is a precursor to freedom. A precursor to, to real freedom. And that just doing whatever you want, that's not freedom at all. That's just inclination. SC cannot understand this alone by itself. It needs TC. So thinking about, I mean, the way that like SC thinks about, we need to open and, you know, broaden everything. Uh, we need to like open their minds and broaden their horizons. Forgetting that discipline also means in this other sense of just a narrow focus on something, right? Um, and again, I think that that is necessarily requires like direct instruction, real, competent, uh, authoritative teaching. But it's an authority, again, SC cannot understand this point, that authority in teaching and education derives from really knowing what you're talking about and answering questions. And um, there's even, there's a, there's a lot of authority in erudition, someone who really knows what they're talking about. Um, and um, can, you know, can answer difficult questions and... Um, even knows much more about the topic than they really need, just for a, let's say, for a, for a high school class. That this narrow focus is at the heart of a good education. And this is not understood. We need to open and broaden everything. And that, you know, discipline uh, and punishment, th those things go against freedom. Um, this is a mindset this, that's just completely immature. 
And if you have like immaturity in education as as an institution, there's no way you can create mature graduates. So uh, I've I've got the name Santrock in some of these notes, and um, this is you know a, a, an educational psychology book that really portrayed education, uh, teacher centered and student centered in this very balanced way. Um, so, I mean, I'll eventually I'll, I'll get to that, but it's worth mentioning here that this balance existed not that long ago in some select places, like before it really, you know, before the, the candle was blown out. Um, so we in education, we started to signal, going back to an earlier thread, that the world is bad and that young passion is good. That young people with their passion are with their feeling, not with their reasoning, not with their rationality. That that's like the solution to some bad world. Um, and that, in a way, is the underbelly of student-centeredness. And that kind of hypothesis is, you know, a big part of this activism problem that we're facing. Implicit and teacher-centeredness is a kind of a gratitude. And it's a gratitude that leads towards enchantment, being just grateful and appreciative of being enchanted with the world, right? To see that the world is good, right? It's this big, beautiful, exciting place that you can't wait to grow up and graduate and to become a full member in. But also that, you know, along that that journey, again, this teacher-centered gratitude, appreciation, enchantment, see, enchantment with the world, seeing, again, that the world is, is good, but that this requires the mastery ultimately of reason over passion. You never really lose your passion. You never become an unfeeling, you know, automaton. But um, you know, you you place reason firmly upon her seat, so to speak, and that you become an apprentice to education and to great teachers in order to. Um, to master this, you know, this uh, this full development of the human capacity to reason. And great students will center themselves automatically or as a byproduct. That they're going to take charge uh, of their learning at a certain point. Um, and then education becomes what they want to do anyway, Right? That you have this foundation of work and that eventually like they're able to find the work that they really want to do and that that work becomes play right it's experience as play that they just you know if you really love learning about something then yeah that's how you experience it and that in a way is this kind of ultimate goal of like that's the beauty of teacher-centered education is that you have this foundation of work, and even if you're not passionate or not inspired by it, you do that task anyway uh, in all these different kinds of courses. And eventually, you know, more and more, you specialize, um, and that the work becomes play. In student-centered education, the play is supposed to become work somehow, but anyway, it doesn't work. That, you know... It's just not clear how the reversal of that is supposed to work. Um, 
that like play, I suppose, becomes more and more serious and that it becomes a kind of work. But again, I, I maybe that's a, a gap, but I, I don't fully understand everything about student-centeredness because, uh, again, I'm preoccupied with making the case against it. How a baseline of work can become playful, I think, makes sense to me. How a baseline of, of play, of a kind of a non-serious approach, how that becomes work, um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe in a very early childhood sense, I can see how it could make sense. So anyway, student-centeredness as an historical corrective. That's how it presents itself. That we had this bad, boring, harmful teacher-centeredness, and now SC is here to correct history. In a sense, that may have some limited success, but only because it can build off of a past of teacher-centeredness. Right? When you've got kids who are like hardworking and diligent, and then you start introducing all these open, fun, creative kinds of things... Um, that can really work really well because, you know, it, it's adding more more variety. But student-centeredness atop only more student-centeredness that preceded it is not effective. And I think that that's why a lot of kids are so bored with school um, and they don't see school as important because it's just, it's just too flimsy and too wishy-washy. And when you get, when you're in that classroom where you've got someone with high standards and high expectations and they really know what they're talking about um, then something really I think something really powerful happens that student-centeredness does not understand that like the, the, the reading materials are good and like any any difficult question I have can be answered and that things going to be explained and, and discussion is going to be fruitful, um, you know, under the kind of, under the expertise of this teacher. I think that, again, a, a balance. The way that teachers, and uh, I think in student-centered circles, revel in their self-importance should trouble us all. That what they do is so far beyond, you know, again, in Freerian terms, the mere transactional nature of education. That they, they, they commit this fallacy of, they poo-poo um, this ability of someone who knows a lot about something to transfer or transmit that knowledge to a bunch of young people um, as if that's like no big deal. That there's no appreciation and no respect for the unimaginable difficulty of that. To do that reliably well to, you know, to a lot of students. It's just, well, you know, that's just dismissed as something that's just, what, so easy to do? To transmit or transfer knowledge and information? Um, it's not. And again, uh, this is education itself, not respecting education itself. That what we need to do is be, what, transformative, transformational, again, activistic. Increasingly, we are the ones who communicate most and sometimes are the only ones who, beyond mere communication, converse with a given young person. So we are important. But that's not the way that you're important as a teacher. In this therapeutic sense, you know, like, 
that if you're one of the only people from like, if you're one of the only grown-ups that this young person can talk to, one of the only members of the mature generation that that they have a healthy, functional relationship with, they don't have like pain and trauma and they have this, um, you know, they have this, this, they trust this teacher that that is an important relationship. Um, but that's not, that's certainly not primarily your role as a teacher, right? Teacher, I, I really think we want to get back to this idea of a teacher as a content expert, as someone who is helping them by giving them an education, um, not someone who is, you know, helping them by helping them. I know it sounds, it might sound kind of cold or, or you know, unfeeling, which is certainly never what therapy is. But the way that you're important in that capacity is not in your capacity as a teacher. Um, just in the way that, you know, if a child is lost, they're looking for their parents or maybe a police officer, but they can also, like, you know, uh, like, you know, a, a stranger could also help them too. In that, in that example, you're just acting as someone of, you're just acting as, a, as an adult, uh, just kind of stepping into a situation that, that requires it. But that, that's really much more of a personal relationship. And this whole personal relationship, it really has to be very carefully tempered. Uh, in the same way that parents shouldn't be friends with their kids. Um, that that relationship is not the primary relationship of, of teacher and student. So I would say to, the, to this type of teacher, do not rejoice that you are all they have. Because, you know, if they, you know, if they're relying on teachers to act in this kind of surrogate parental role, it really means that it's going to undermine your efficacy as a teacher, as a teacher to, you know, a, a kind of a metaphorical orphan. So what we really want is um, to get a really, bringing it back to educational terms, this really sturdy teacher-centered baseline of you know, knowledge and content um, a foundation that is, and then it can become really effective and gratifying to indulge these open, free, creative, you know, explorations and projects and tasks, etc. But lacking that, right, student-centeredness, you know, on top of itself, that sort of, when it becomes foundational, and it's like, you know, we're doing, you know, we're doing more, you know, fun, creative tasks. It's like, you know, I think that this that kids, in some ways, like I was describing this this classroom with a, with an expert, and you know, really feeling that you can learn a lot about something from someone who knows so much about it. Um, that that's really gratifying, and I think that kids and parents alike both want that. And what can happen in the in in the culture of education is that. It can't be done because teachers don't know how to do it anymore. That that can be lost. Um, that 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 if the if the parental and student like appetite were really to change, which I think it might. Um, I think we still have enough good teachers that we can accommodate it, but um, these things can become lost. Um, that it's going to be very hard to start. You know, for example, like 
you know, as a policy shift to just say that, you know, we high schools need to be doing Shakespeare in the original language. Um, it would be very hard for this, for a generation of teachers to be able to do that because, you know, we've got young teachers now who grew up in, who didn't read Shakespeare themselves even in high school. If they weren't English majors, they wouldn't have read it in university either. Um, and so it's, it's really, it can be hard to get back to something um, if you've abandoned it. And, you know, it takes a long time for an educational institution to become therapeutic, but then for it to snap back from being too therapeutic to being more, you know, really educational, as I would say in, in a teacher-centered sense, is really going to be a very difficult thing. Lacking those foundations. Okay, I'm going to cut it off here again. This will be my part two. Uh, I know an hour and 15 minutes is about as long as I can talk at one time um, without, without needing a break, it seems, these days. Um, okay, so I'll stop here. Uh, thanks very much for listening, and uh, I'll try to get to uh, part probably part three and four, it looks like. Possibly, yeah, possibly even five, but I'll try to keep it at four. All right, well, thanks very much for listening, and we're still setting up Philip Reif. Um, and the process is ongoing. Thank you.